On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Brian LaRue about building serverless apps using Architect. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 17. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Brian LaRue. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you are the co-founder and CTO at Begin. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what Begin does? Yeah, uh, cool. So uh, I'm Brian. I'm a, a webby hacker, I guess you could say. I've been building software for a really, really long time now. And uh, focus has uh, been in the last few years, the cloud. Um, in a previous life, I used to work in the mobile space uh, quite a bit. And uh, begin.com is continuous integration and delivery for serverless applications, modern serverless applications. Awesome. All right. So I wanted to have you on to talk about the architect framework. Yeah. Um, so this has been out there for quite some time. Uh, but just in case people aren't familiar with what it is, maybe you could just tell the listeners what the architect framework is all about and what you can build with it. Yeah, architect uh, is a serverless framework. It uh, papers over some of the more complex bits of getting up and running with a, a serverless application. It's sometimes accused of being pretty opinionated. Um, but I think maybe we'll dig into that a bit in this, in this uh, episode and how maybe it's not so much opinionated, it's just, you know, makes some choices uh, up front for you and saves you time. It's, it's much more convention than it is configuration. And uh, it's really targeted at building super fast web apps. So let's get into that. So first of all, why did you build this, right? Because there's Claudia JS and yeah. there's Sam and there's serverless framework and there's you name it, there's a framework out there that helps you build serverless applications. So so what was the reasoning behind it? Yeah, we we never actually set out to build a framework. Um in 2014, uh I left my role at Adobe. I used to work uh, on the PhoneGap and Cordova projects and uh, a big part of that was um this thing called PhoneGap Build, which is a hosted service as a part of the Creative Cloud where you can upload HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and we spit out uh, native uh, iOS and Android apps. And building for Creative Cloud and building a big load-balanced Rails application taught me a lot of lessons. Uh, one of those lessons was I'd never want to do that again. And so when I came out the other side, um, Ryan Block and I started the first iteration of Begin, uh, which was a Slack bot. And we didn't really know a whole lot about what we were going to be building or how we were going to be building it, but we knew what we didn't want to do. And what we didn't want to do was take on a traditional load balanced monolithic architecture. And this new serverless thing was around. And it looked like this was the future. It was 2014 at this time. Uh, Lambda was new, but there was no way to do an HTTP call. And then that August, um, API Gateway was released. And uh, I was I was floored personally. I I was I saw it and I was like, that's it. This has got to be the future. So we we built the first iteration to begin, which was a Slack bot, and uh, it had really strong real time requirements because it was a bot and uh, it had a web app component to it. And at that time, there was you know only one framework and it was called Jaws, and it it really was early days. So we built our own thing, but we built a product. We didn't build. Uh, architect per se. Uh, that project didn't work out, but we extracted architect afterwards to build our second thing. And and we knew we were onto something because very similar to the Basecamp story, we we didn't try and create a framework. We we built a thing. And in the process of building that thing, we we came up with a something that looks a little bit different. When you look at architect, it's not the same as other frameworks because we weren't trying to build a framework. We were trying to build a product. Yeah, and I, I think that's actually kind of typical of building serverless applications. I know as I as I started building serverless applications, as I was sort of working on my first few um, apps, uh, you know, I built the Lambda API web framework, right? Mm. Because I just needed a better way to process API gateway calls using the whole Lambda proxy integration stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I built the uh, serverless MySQL package to deal with the max connections issue. Uh, and, you know, you start building these components to help you build the products that you want to build. And eventually you get some really cool tools that come out of it. And that's, and that's basically what you did with Architect. And, and you've made that open source, right? Yeah, we donated it to the... Um at that time, it was called the JS Foundation, but uh, 
foundations, uh, the JS Foundation and the Node.js Foundation merged and became the OpenJS Foundation. Um, I've got a pretty long history in open source and I really believe in foundation backed governance for projects. And so it was important to me to pull that IP out of uh, a privately held venture backed startup and put it into a place where the commons could contribute back to it. Um, and, and just as a note, and so the listeners understand, uh, I'm, I'm not a zero sum thinker. There's going to be more than one framework. Uh, technology tends to be additive and there's gonna be different things that we can learn from each other and, and build on from each other. So. Uh, by all means, check out Architect, but you know, if you're a Python hacker, you would be remiss not to check out Chalice. And if you're deep into AWS, you're probably already using SAM. Right. And uh, I think that's just fine. So that makes sense to me. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about this opinionated thing, because when yeah. I first saw this, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, but, but when I first saw the Architect framework, I was looking through it and I'm like, okay, this seems like it's built for solving a very specific problem. And again, I, I know it can be extended and you've got other things that we can talk about, like some of your macros and um, things that you can build on top of it. But it just seemed very opinionated to me. And, you know, in the sense that you were, I don't know, enforcing small file sizes, yeah. purpose Lambda functions, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so so what are your thoughts on that? Because you maybe don't think it's so opinionated, right? I didn't. And um, uh, Jan Kui from uh, The Burning Monk. Uh, wrote an awesome blog post where he, he threw architect way up in the opinionated corner. And when we first saw it, we were like, oh, weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we, we do look different and we do look like uh, we've, we have opinions, but I think most people will share those opinions. So one of our opinions is that we need to be really fast and we need to be fast at both author time and at runtime. So by author time speed, I mean, uh, we need deploy iterations and uh, lead time to production to be really quick. Monolithic apps have uh, pretty poor characteristics for this. They tend to be deployed in minutes to hours, if not days or weeks. Whereas serverless applications, uh, because we break them apart into small constituent pieces, or, or we can, uh, we can deploy those artifacts in parallel. And we get a lot faster deployment speeds as a result. So that's really nice. And I like that. And I like small functions for that uh, particular aspect. Um, there's a single responsibility principle as well. When you have bigger functions, uh, they're going to be harder to debug by, by default. If you have small single responsibility functions, uh, your discovery and maintenance gets a lot easier. So if there's a, for example, if there's a bug on the get about page and there's one Lambda function serving the get about page, well, you know exactly where the problem is. It's on the get about page function. It's not somewhere in this ball of code that you've hmm. uploaded. Right. The kind of final piece to this uh, with the small functions bit um, was really driven by practicality. So in our first version of our bot uh, for begin, we did the same thing everyone else did. Uh, we put an express web server inside of a Lambda function and it worked, it worked really well until we started building something bigger than hello world. And then it started to not work so well. And in particular, the thing that didn't work well was the, the cold start. And you hear about cold starts all the time. And it sort of irks me because I feel like this problem has been solved for a long time too. We uh, measured cold start uh, with every different runtime with uh, varying payload sizes, and uh, we determined that it was correlated to payload size. So we did the thing where um, we just made small functions. So we, we found that um, in the earlier versions of Lambda, there was a five megabyte kind of uh, magic number. If you were over five megs, you would be over a second cold start you're under five megs, you would usually be sub-second cold start, which was totally a suitable performance profile for a bot. So we just set up our CI to fail builds after functions got bigger than five megs, and we started uh, dividing up our app and the single responsibility principle. And and, uh, and, by, and by payload size, you mean the package size of the artifact, right? Yeah, the zipped package size, actually. And, and I've been talking to other uh, devs about this, and there's been a lot of movement in the last four years on Lambda, and it's gotten a lot better at cold starts. And I imagine these numbers are different today. Um, but uh, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, I think it's totally appropriate to build out your first versions with just a few fat functions. But as time goes on, you're going to want that single responsibility principle and uh, the isolation that it brings. Um, there's one last small uh, interesting uh, advantage to this technique uh, is that the security posture is just better. You have less blast radius. Uh, if your functions are locked down to their least privilege and their single responsibility, um, you're just going to have a way better um, uh, risk profile for security. Right. 
So, so the other thing again, and, and maybe this is why uh, Jan and, and maybe some others, including myself, um, thought it was an opinionated framework. And, and that's because it's, and I don't think limited is the right word, but it's specifically curated, I guess, with, with just a few core components that you can use to build applications. Um, but, but with that small set of services, you can quite accurately replicate the execution environment on your local machine, right? Yeah, this was another really important thing for us. And, and I think uh, it, was, it was frankly probably more of a coping mechanism than anything else. When you open up that AWS console for the first time, it's a pretty intimidating experience. There's over 300 services there and you, know, you don't know where to look. You don't know how they are integrated with each other. And uh, they've got different UIs for each service. And we sat back and really looked at the requirements of our application and uh, distilled it down to its constituent parts, what protocols we needed to support and, and how. And we realized we only needed eight services. We didn't need 300. We just needed a subset of them to build a cruddy web app. So uh, with that knowledge, we um, really built our abstractions on top of those eight services. We don't hide the other services from you. We just pave the path for the, those eight and make it really smooth and easy to get on board with them. Um, the canonical example of difficulty for configuration would be uh, probably API Gateway. I think most people would agree yeah. it's a bit of a beast and not, it's a powerful beast. Um, but it's a scary, powerful beast. <laughs> and so most people just want to give it some URLs and say, please return you know, values from a function when these URLs get invoked. They don't want to get into the depths of uh, velocity templates and the rest of it. So we, we paper over API Gateway. We, we make um, that part look really, really simple, even though it's really complicated under the hood. And then we add some sugar or some, some terse, terseness, I should say, to uh, the configuration file format. Um, for Dynamo, uh, SQS, SNS, and uh, a handful of other services that really aren't that user-facing. And that's kind of it. We have a macro primitive as well that lets you reach into the cloud formation that gets generated. So you can access anything in AWS that you want. Um, it's just our contention that most of the time for a large portion of applications, you, you won't even need to. And so another thing that I think is interesting about the architect framework is the fact that you have those primitives for like SQS and SNS. Uh, and, and I know they're named after AWS services, but um, you know, if you think of like the serverless framework, for example, they sort of abstract away the connections to things like SQS queues. Like it'll create certain resources for you, but it's generally in the context of a connection to a function. Um, but if you wanted to create your own SQS queue, um, you know, you'd have to write the cloud formation and put that in the resources section of your serverless.yaml file, um, you know, in order to build that SQS queue. And the same with SNS and, and DynamoDB is a great example. Um, you know, so by having these primitives, and then we can talk more about that in a minute, but is that something that you're looking ahead for, like something like cloud portability? Um, I think that there is a possibility of portability in a longer run future. Uh, less interested in uh, a disintermediation and I'm more interested in velocity on the de facto cloud. And uh, this isn't sucking up to Amazon. This is just being straight up with where the state of the industry is. If I had better options, I would take them for sure. But AWS has a really big lead um, in this world. And the other players are, are frankly just catching up. Uh, yeah. Azure has a concept called uh, Azure Resource Manager, which is ARM. As the, the acronym that is their equivalent to CloudFormation, it's very new. Can't really build a full app with it yet. And Google doesn't even have an answer to this um, idea of info as code yet. So I guess Terraform would be Terraform and uh, Kubernetes YAML files would be the answer. So portable where <laughs> would be my right. question. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good and, question. Uh, and, and, and I just don't think, uh, I, and I, I think they'll catch up. Uh, I absolutely believe that there's going to be more than one cloud. I just don't know uh, who it is yet. So <laughs> what I do know, uh, though, is that AWS is amazing. It gives me the characteristics that I want. And uh, they've been a, a wonderful partner to work with, too. So we can build uh, on there with a high degree of confidence uh, that they are probably the de facto standard. And... Um, We'll see where the other players get to, but like ARM looks a whole lot like CloudFormation to me. So can we translate CloudFormation into ARM one day? 
I don't know, maybe. Do I want to do that? Not super badly, uh, to be honest with you. It all comes down to the data store. And uh, DynamoDB is real hard to beat. I'm sure Cosmos is going to try, but I, uh, I am an extremely happy locked-in uh, Dynamo user right now, and I don't see why I would adopt more latency to use it. So it's kind of my <laughs> that's kind of my perspective there. But you know, is it possible? Sure. Uh, do you want to? Probably not. <laughs> not right now. <laughs> yeah, at least not right yeah. now. Definitely. Well, I, I want to talk about DynamoDB. I have a, a whole bunch of questions around DynamoDB uh, that I want to ask you. Yeah. Um, but maybe let's go back to the framework and talk about um, you know, how how does it help you build sort of these modern serverless applications? Yeah, so it gets you off the ground running really fast. And, and you know, everyone makes that claim, but I'd like to quantify it. So within... 10 seconds, we should have a local development environment that fully um, replicates exactly what you would have in the cloud. Um, folks would say, you know, this is impossible. I heard the same thing about uh, mobile emulators 10 years ago. Uh, it's not impossible. It's very possible. AWS doesn't change their APIs all the time. In fact, they change them extremely rarely. And again, we're subsetting to like a very small number of services. So we have a pretty kick-ass local development environment. It's a couple of years old now, and it's been matured in the open source world, and um, it works real fast. So you don't need uh, to deploy or even to have AWS creds to get started. And that's a really big advantage for understanding uh, how this thing fits together. We even have DynamoDB running locally uh, using uh, Michael Hart's amazing DynaLite project. Um, and then the next step beyond that is like, okay, cool. I want to get these bits up in the cloud. And uh, once you've you know credentialed yourself with Amazon correctly, it's one command, and you're and you're there. There's no configuration uh, to speak of other than the ARC file, and uh, everything else gets generated by by convention. And uh, this leads to a pretty slick development experience. You know, kind of what we're used to with CRUD apps uh, back in the day, where you could you know, generate routes and see them deploy and see them respond to HTTP events and, you know, have state shared between them, but in a stateless execution environment. And uh, that's really the class of app I'm building on AWS today. There's obviously a whole lot of other workloads that are possible, um, but we're really tuned for that use case of building a web app uh, as fast as you can. Right. And, and that's the other thing I really like about Architect is that you're, you're not trying to be all things to all people, right? Um, you know, and it's great that, that bootstrapping locally or, or just getting you up and running right away without even connecting to the cloud, I think, is a, uh, is a sort of interesting approach to doing that. Um, but in order to deploy, you end up just generating SAM templates under the hood, though, right? Yeah, but we didn't initially, actually. This is a fairly recent uh, addition. Um, I did the SAM, um, Architect 6 is all SAM and CloudFormation based. Uh, we were able to delete roughly 20,000 lines of code, which I'm going to get into in my serverless comp talk. Um, so so just going to CloudFormation for the listeners, by the way, like screw whether or not you use Architect, that's cool if you do, but if, even if you don't, um, learn from us. And, and the learning is we did an SDK based framework uh, for the first few years of its life. And the net result of us uh, moving to CloudFormation was a massive code deletion. Um, and we gained features in the process. We gained a ton of features in the process. CloudFormation is absolutely where the puck is going to be. And uh, to me, it's a de facto standard. And I'm certain a lot of people would cringe at that one because it's not, you know, consortium-based st spec standard. But um, it's uh, it's the right way to build a, an AWS application. It's less code. It, it offers a huge amount of determinism. And... Um, yeah, we've been really happy moving to it uh, as a, as a, the baseline. And so Arc really is um, a file format. And that file format is extremely terse. It's like if YAML chilled out and <laughs> just didn't. And so the, the file format, uh, a lot of people get a little bit bent out of shape out of it, but um, we had good reasons for doing this. So one, we wanted comments. And JSON doesn't have comments. Uh, two, we didn't want deeply nested structures. And YAML really, really encourages deeply nested structures. And so we didn't want to use JSON. We didn't want to use YAML. And so we were using any like files for a little bit. And then we kind of ended up creating our own syntax along the way. And um, it's really terse. It's extremely readable. You can also write it. And this is a big benefit to Architect. You can look at the manifest file and within a few lines of code, you will understand what that application does. 
nobody can look at a SAM or a cloud formation uh, document and know what that application does. It doesn't tell you anything. It just shows you a lot of stuff. So we, we translate that ARC file into a SAM document for you. And we, we dump it in the root of your, your directory so you can see the delta for yourself. But usually it's a 60 to 80x reduction in uh, configuration, uh, which is a very huge productivity improvement that is quantifiable. You, you know, you, you can see it for yourself and just run it and boom, you just generated a shitload of cloud formation. And, uh, and I have spent days working on cloud formation files. So yes, I know, <laughs> I know full well, um, that it would be nice. So, so, so you had mentioned being able to access those files as well. So, yeah. so the arc file is your configuration, uh, and listeners have to go check this out because like you said, it's ridiculously terse. I mean, it, it's so short what you need to do in order to generate probably what? 500, 1,000 lines of CloudFormation at the end of the day or something like that? Yeah, and so we've really distilled a lot of the what we feel are the best practices. Maybe the we've distilled a lot of the opinions that are out there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on how to do this. So um, because we know all the resources up front, we can give you a least privileged role and attach it to those. Oh, right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So you don't have to do any of that. The other big uh, tricky thing in CloudFormation is getting service discovery right. So ideally, when you're building out your, your serverless application of CloudFormation, none of your resources have a human-readable name. Um, you can give them uh, logical IDs, which are human-readable names, but you want that generated stuff to effectively be GUIDs. And you don't want that to have any significance or meaning because we want to treat our services like cattle. We don't want to treat them like pets. And so right. we want to be able to wipe those out and recreate them and what have you. And so uh, our, at runtime, this becomes a pain in the ass. If your database table is a GUID, it's really hard to find. Um, so Architect generates uh, a service discovery scheme for you by uh, using SSM parameters, which are free tier. There are other ways to do this. Uh, some people like to use environment variables, but those get out of hand with structured data. And uh, other people like using CloudMap, which I think has probably got a good future, but CloudMap is also extremely expensive. It's 10 cents per resource per month. And uh, you, can, you can rack up a lot of resources. We have thousands for begin, so uh, it just wasn't realistic for us. Uh, so we use SSM, which is a free key value store and has great throughput, and we can um, cache the results of those lookups. And so you can interact with your DynamoDB table uh, at runtime as though it had a real name, but um, under the hood, it does not. So those are just some of the things that we can do with that that cloud formation for you without you having yeah. to think about it. There's a ton more of uh, minutia, especially around uh, IAM roles and uh, and uh, the security aspects can get pretty. So gnarly. then, <laughs> it, so then, if you were to build out something, you generate all this cloud formation or the SAM template. Uh, you said you can add custom. Well, well, there's there's two things you can do. Uh, one. You can add custom resources through your macros. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing you can do is if you just say, you know, I don't want to use architect anymore. Yep. Uh, I just want to take my bootstrap SAM file. Yep. Uh, and I can just eject and go my separate way. You can bail. And uh, we actually have a playground on the website. If uh, you go to arc.code slash playground, we've got a, a one of those two up things where on the left side mm -hmm. you write uh, architect and then on the right side we show you the generated cloud formation oh, nice. uh, template. And yeah, there was an eject path uh, in this that we really wanted to have. Um, I, I feel that um, increasingly CloudFormation is the, the standard way to build AWS applications. You know, if the cloud had a file format, it would probably be CloudFormation. So uh, in order for us to have interoperability uh, with that ecosystem and also the, you know, the portability into things like SAR, uh, we really wanted to have have uh, that uh, that ability to eject and not not hide it behind a leaky abstraction. And so, speaking of this idea of putting things into SAM, um, when you were using SDKs, oh yeah, 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 all of the services at AWS you can control with their APIs, right? Um, and and so that's like the first thing they release. Yeah, CloudFormation. Not so much. Yes. So are, are you handicapped at all by using SAM now, um, you know, in some cases, or just have you not run into those limitations yet? So uh, one of the beauties of the Arc macro system is that it can run an after deploy. And uh, we haven't exposed all of this yet in documentation, but it's in the code. 
and we do it ourselves. And so you can run a patch after you deploy, or you can do whatever the heck you want with those generated resources. It's kind of like CloudFormation custom resources, except for it runs locally on your machine and uses SDK mm -hmm. calls. Now this seems impure and dangerous, and it is, um, but we had to do it. So uh, believe it or not, AWS has bugs sometimes. And um, when we did this move to CloudFormation, uh, we found some of those bugs and we were not stoked on them. Uh, we found bugs in particular with API Gateway that were pretty uh, deal-breaking um, around binary content encoding. So uh, we ended up having to write a patch that ran after deploy and uh, did another uh, AWS um, or did another uh, API gateway deploy, which is a bit of a, it felt dirty, um, but mm -hmm. it worked. It does, and, um, it, it does. And, I, and I'm right there with you on EventBridge because that's the other thing. Like my latest project is using EventBridge uh, and you can't create custom buses and you can't create, uh, or you can't add rules to custom, custom buses through CloudFormation. This makes me angry now. At this point, this makes me angry as a customer. I, I really feel Amazon is dropping the ball on this one. So CloudFormation is not a nice to have. Uh, the service, the team's got to get together and have this on day zero for every one of their, their releases uh, if they expect us to be following the best practices they publish. And Right, yeah. And uh, That would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I feel like it's not really a disadvantage because we can drop down to the SDK at any time. Um, and there are actually times when when you maybe do want to do that. And so Architect has another um, semi-not well-known feature called dirty deploys. So we'll deploy using CloudFormation by default. And by default, we deploy to a staging stack. And we have a production stack, which is an extra step to get to. Um, you can do your own arbitrary stacks if you want. Um, but we bake in staging production because we feel that's mm -hmm. essential complexity. The other thing we can do is uh, just deploy functions using update function code calls. And this is uh, we, the, the syntax for invoking it is arc deployed dirty. And it, it <laughs> is dirty, but what we'll do is we'll literally zip all your functions and we'll replace the ones in staging. And uh, a dirty deploy uh, usually runs uh, for say 10 functions within two seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, so your iteration speed is incredibly good on staging uh, when you do these dirty deploys, better than CloudFormation even, uh, although CloudFormation has gotten pretty fast. It's not that slow anymore. It used to be really slow. Yeah, so sometimes you need to drop into that SDK and get a little bit dirty. And uh, I think that's okay. Um, but if Amazon's listening, they really got to get CloudFormation support day zero for every every new product. That's uh, Totally agree. It's uh, table stakes these days. All right, so let's talk about microservices. So it sounds like we're building a single application, right? Uh, and I know that what I do with the serverless framework or with SAM uh, is I will build multiple services with separate CloudFormation stacks mm -hmm. as microservices. Mm -hmm. um, so is this something that we can do with Architect as well? Yeah, it's not super well documented, but we have a way for broadcasting SNS events between stacks. Um, the service discovery allows them to talk to each other. And this has worked really well for begin.com. Um, I haven't concluded exactly the best way to do this yet. So, so PubSub is, is great and we have a lot of tools for doing it. We've got you know, SNS, SQS and EventBridge. But it seems to me that we, the, the kind of sweet spot is actually combining these things into like where you would maybe broadcast an event, but it hits a queue. So you know you don't lose it. Because um, mm -hmm. the, the availability and, and uh, processing guarantees between these things are a little bit different. And, and you sort of want the, you want the guarantees of SQS probably, like that message got delivered, um, <laughs> maybe more than once. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there are ways. Um, and generally I would say those ways are pub sub. And I would also say that this is uh, an interesting new, new ground uh, to figure out. You know, once it gets really sophisticated, you might want to get into proto buffers or something like that but i don't know the devs really want to get into that you know we can get a lot done with just json payloads over uh, over pub sub right right yeah and that that's actually why i've been big into event bridge lately yeah uh because you know i i do think that i mean i, I think they're ramping it up and i i know they get like billions of messages that go through there every day. So obviously it's a very reliable service uh, and it's something that if we can make that part of our application, uh, especially for like cross-boundary communications, I think it would be really interesting. Um, of course, you know, you, you, you do have the issue with service discovery, 
But uh, yeah, it's related. And I, I feel these are like really the bleeding edge problems of the cloud right now or service discovery, uh, inter inter app communication. Maybe these are just always problems too. Function composition. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just talked to Rowan Udell about step functions for function composition where it's, you know, it's great for certain asynchronous workflows, but you know, how much coupling do you want to create across service boundaries and are step functions the right choice there? And, uh, and you know, what if you need something synchronous, but, but I don't know, there's just, there's a lot around that. I think that causes confusion, especially when you go to that single responsibility principle. Absolutely. You know, I think it also speaks to AWS's maturity in the space. Um, you know, you look at it and it looks like they got a lot of pub sub and a lot of databases for some reason. Shit, they even have two ways to invoke uh, HTTP events through through API Gateway. But these things have different availability guarantees and different service guarantees and different limits. And you really have to, uh, you can't just like <laughs> abdicate thinking about it. You really got to dig in and understand, okay, is the characteristics of SQS appropriate for this use case do i want you know this thing to retry forever <laughs> right. or do i want to fail at some point <laughs> like uh that kind of thing or like da database is another really good one i mean they're they there just is not going to be a database that fits all workloads and so right. amazon has a lot of database pro products although oracle says their database can handle all of those use cases so i don't, I don't know if you <laughs> if you heard that lately uh, yeah, I don't pay too close attention to Oracle in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not worth it. Uh, all right, so so just one last thing on building apps. So another thing we're seeing a lot with modern applications is a lot of front-end developers hosting static sites, right? Yeah. So, so what's the architect solution for that? Yeah, this one actually came at us a little bit of a blindside. So we uh, built out the uh, beginning uh, earliest uh, version of it around late 2014, 2015, 2016. And uh, I kind of missed the rise of the static app. Um, I was a part of the PhoneGap team, so I was close to the rise of the single page app, um, but I, I, I did not participate in the rise of the static app. And so when Architect was first released, a lot of people uh, struggled using it uh, to build things because we put um, a function at get slash and we make it greedy. And that's a, it's a Lambda function that's returning HTML. Oh my God, why would you do that? <laughs> um, it works really great if you server render, uh, which you probably do want to do. Um, but uh, if your content is inert and uh, it's not changing, then you know static sites make a lot of sense. Especially makes sense for your landing page and, and that kind of thing. So we retooled Architect in version six um, so that the root of, our, of your application is a public folder. Mm -hmm. uh, which we greedily proxy. So anything in that folder uh, that you compile to with, you know, Gatsby or React or whatever uh, will be available at the root of your application. And then any functions that you add will be mounted at sub URLs. And so you could have post GraphQL, for example, sure. would call Lambda function, but, you know, all your static assets can just live in public. And this seems to be the architecture that people really want these days. Um, we don't do it ourselves uh, for what it's worth. We server render things through Lambda functions, which at first sounds disturbing and slow to people, but you have to remember that we put these things behind a CDN. So your yep. Lambda function is not getting invoked a lot. It's getting invoked maybe once a day or something like that. Yeah, because cached. you can send, yeah, because actually that's one of the things I think many people don't know is that API Gateway has a CloudFront distribution in front of it. Yeah. Uh, and so if you send back the right caching headers, then it will cache that for you and not hit the back end. Yep, and CloudFront's a great uh, solution. Uh, you know, if, uh, we actually do the regional API thing and then uh, we put a CloudFront in front of the, just sure. in front of the, you know, the blank URL and get rid of that ugly slash daydream or slash production that you yep. get. Um, and it, yeah, it works great. CloudFront takes standard caching headers. Uh, even better if you're putting your stuff in S3 um, and you upload your content um, using our deploy, we'll set all of the headers and content type for you on the S3 bucket so the e tags come back correctly. And oh, nice! You just you get you get it cached for free basically, and you know you're going to see sub 10 millisecond responses on uh, the majority of your content. Um, you know, once in a while you'll get a cold start and it'll be 200 milliseconds. It's like, <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's still, still pretty good. 
All right. So yeah. let's, let, let's talk about some of these primitives because this is, again, uh, this is one of the things about the architect framework that I really, really like. Um, you know, that you have, I think, what, like 12 different primitive services and, and 12. Yeah. Uh, 12, maybe, maybe you can explain it better than I can. You built it. <laughs> I'm one of the people that built it. I didn't build it exclusively. There's, there's actually quite a few people hacking on it nowadays. Um, and I have to go to the website. Uh, just to remember myself. Um, so when we first started, you know, we were building cruddy web apps. And I remember we actually had a piece of graph paper out and uh, we were figuring out, you know, what we needed to build and then what services at Amazon facilitated those. And so we've ballooned to 12 services, but we only used to be eight. Uh, the services are Lambda, API Gateway, uh, S3, SNS, SQS, DynamoDB and CloudWatch events. And then there's some sort of supporting cast um, services that we use that uh, you don't really see and don't really come into, into play very often, but uh, CloudFormation obviously, Route 53, and uh, CloudFront, Parameter Store, and IAM kind of set up mm -hmm. the supporting side. And that's it, uh, That that is the core of Architect. Um, we, we just paper over those services and make it really easy to build a web app we kind of felt that those, you know, facilitated CRUD. They facilitate background tasks that can be long running. Uh, you can put a CDN in front of this stuff. You can host static assets. You know, this is basically everything that you would need to build the majority of a, a web-based app today. Yeah, and that makes sense. This isn't to say that you don't have those other use cases. And that's why we dump out the cloud formation for you and let you modify it. Because um, you will have other use cases. We've we've got a few macros floating around out there already. Uh, the most complex one is for uploading directly to S3. So we mm -hmm. directly uploading to S3 sounds like it should be an easy thing to do, um, but it turns out it takes a fair amount of CloudFormation to pull off. And so we wrapped all that up and made it a single line directive inside of Arc. And uh, it's a good example of not something that we built it for initially, but we were able to extend it into. Nice. All right, so what about limits in AWS? Because that's one of the things about AWS, which is great, is they, they do publish all their limits and people are like, oh, well, this has a limit. Uh, yeah, well, everything has limits, but it's nice to know what those are. So does Arc sort of deal with those gracefully? Yeah, and I, I, f I feel this is worth a shout out because this is something the other clouds don't do well. Uh, they sort of claim that they'll handle it all and uh, they, they leave it up to you to discover where they're where their fail <laughs> failure rates happen, when you're going to get throttled, you know, when you're when you're going to overwhelm them and that kind of thing, and uh, that that's a bad experience. I want to know what the service boundaries are so I can design my application for them. Um, though the big one that you run into uh, when you start working with CloudFormation is the resource limit of 200. We do some tricky nesting to get around that limit. Um, otherwise, I I, I kind of don't feel the limits are. Uh, the limiting factor anymore. There was a time uh, when it felt like, you know, Lambda needed a lot more memory and Lambda is going to be better once we get X. Um, but the, that time has passed. We have tons of memory. The execution um, limits are, are pretty generous and uh, I haven't run into problems with that. Um, a while back, I actually heard someone concerned about DynamoDB limits. I thought was pretty laughable because DynamoDB has an extremely large amount of potential theoretical throughput and uh, a potentially infinite um, storage, uh, guaranteeing single digit millisecond latency queries. Like these are characteristics I have never seen in a database. There, I don't right, think there yeah. is another database with these characteristics. So uh, yeah, it's got limits and they publish them, but I view this as a positive, not a, not a negative. And uh, it helps you helps you build a better app. Um, you know what you're in for. All right, so let's talk about DynamoDB. Yeah, because uh, I, I know you mentioned that earlier, and I, I think you gave, or I think I heard you give a talk on DynamoDB one time. Yeah. Um, so DynamoDB is sort of woven into Architect. It, it's sort of the database of choice, or yep. uh, database, you know, the default database, I guess you would say, within the Architect framework. Yep. Um, so why DynamoDB? Maybe let's start with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a decision-making process, and it's one that a lot of people aren't, aren't comfortable with. It's a managed database, which is a nice way of saying that it's a proprietary database. It's owned and run privately by Amazon. And, um, you know, uh, after our, our history has a long, or our, our industry has a long history of um, being gun-shy of these databases because uh, of Oracle, frankly. And, and I don't blame anyone for 
painting Amazon with that brush. And you're like, oh, my database, that's my data. I don't want them to have that. I want to control it. Uh, the only people that say that, by the way, are people that have never sharded a database. Once you've right. sharded a database once, you are happy to let someone else manage that for you. You are more than happy. How much does it cost? Fine. It's less than a DBA. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to be that's a good, good deal point. for me. Uh, so once you get over that initial uh, concern, uh, which isn't a real concern, by the way, that free tier is extremely generous. You can run a local instance of this thing yourself uh, headlessly if you want for testing and building out locally. So you don't have this um, requirement of the cloud. And uh, the, the free tier is insane. I think you get something like 20 gigs in the free yeah. tier. So like you can build a lot of app, 20 gigs, a lot of app. <laughs> um, you can put images in there. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> You don't want to, but you could. Um, yeah, it's a great DB. The other, I guess the other thing that, that people get a little tripped up on is the syntax is, uh, it's a bit strange. It's, a, it's right. coming out from a different world. I don't think it actually is that strange for what it's worth. I'm pretty sure if you know, you'd know you never seen SQL before and I showed it to you, you'd be like, whoa, that's strange. So, <laughs> you know, like, it's just what you're used to. Um, it's, a, it's a sadly verbose query language. It takes a, it takes a lot of directives in JSON form to make it right. uh, do pretty trivial things. We've written a few higher level wrappers for it uh, to make it a, a bit nicer to work with. Um, but it's all about the semantics, you know, single digit millisecond latency for up to a megabyte at a time querying, no matter how many rows I have, that's unreal. Like we've never had a database that can do that. And uh, I'm happy to pay for that capability. And I think you mentioned a good point about the query language and more so about how you go about getting data in and out of DynamoDB. Uh, because getting data in is fairly simple. You just kind of put items, but it's not always just put item, right? Um, you know, sometimes it's update item and sometimes you need to use an update item to put an item depending on what you're doing uh, and you want to minimize yeah. lookups. Upserting. Um, yeah, upserting, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you have to use these tricks like if not exists on the created date, if you don't want that to get updated, if you're overwriting a particular item. And, you know, there's... Uh, you know, there's some interesting syntax, obviously, that begins with the select part of the sort key. Um, you know, there's just there's there's a lot of really cool things that you can do, but it's certainly not very straightforward, in my yeah. opinion. I mean, I, I come from a SQL background. I've done SQL for 20 some odd years. So for me, SQL is super easy, right? Um, you know, but with DynamoDB, I'm always thinking about a different way to access it. Yeah. Um, you know, what what I have to be worried about overwriting different records and then yeah. how efficient you need to be when you're grabbing data. Um, and you really, you can only grab data with a primary key or a GSI and then add composite keys to efficiently filter on that sort key. So you don't have, you know, so, so you maybe don't have to add like a filter after that. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's a big learning curve there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I've talked about this on the podcast a million times, but... But at the end of the day, I, I don't think I would want to go back to SQL, especially for most of the use cases that I have. Um, you know, I can use a DynamoDB table to handle that workload. Yeah, me, me too. Um, I'm sure there are. And and uh, actually, uh, I want to give some props to uh, Erica Windish about um, opening my mind on this one a while back. Um, I was sort of kvetching about the cost of Dynamo and you know, we had a lot of rows for um, not very changing data. And uh, they correctly were like, well, why don't you just dump that into S3 and use S3 select? I was like, light bulb went off. I was like, wait a second. Right. Can I do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. And, and uh, you can get crazy good querying speeds out of S3 and S3 select. And uh, this is sort of the beauty of the serverless managed database cloud in that it's no longer a trade-off. We don't have to put it just in Dynamo or just in S3 or just in RDS, why not all three? We can use Dynamo streams to pump all that data into Redshift if we really want to SQ, uh, use SQL to query it. If mm -hmm. um, the data is historic and not changing very often, um, you know, maybe just dump it in S3 and read it with batch and select. Or and, Athena. Yeah. It's great for data that doesn't change. I mean, any time series data, Athena is amazing. Yeah, so I kind of think where we're at now is less about making a trade-off choice and more of a, what what are we opting into for what characteristics and when. So if the you're you're absolutely right. I don't want to trivialize uh, querying Dynamo. <laughs> it's a real 
it's it takes a minute and it's not it's not the easiest uh, to model and you're probably going to get it wrong the first time and yep. it's totally okay uh, because your iteration speed is already a hundred times better than it was before so you're going to be able to fix it and my recommendation to people is to just dive in you know maybe model it a little bit relational and feel that pain and uh, start learning about wide column design the neat thing about this key value store thing is that uh, your skills with Dynamo. Uh, are transferable to Mongo and Cassandra and these other key sure. value stores. This is they all model roughly the same way, where you start with a query and uh, build out your columns from from the query. So, yeah, uh, I get it. It's uh, I talk to friends about this all the time. They're like, "No, I want to use RDS," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know." But <laughs> a lot of people still do. I mean, that's the other thing too, is that there are a lot of companies that still do the whole sharding thing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, in certain companies, you know, sharding is not actually that difficult. If you if you have a very good key that you can use to shard on, uh, you know, so like Slack, that's easy. It's a it's a workspace or, or yeah. whatever it is that they uh, they can easily shard on. Yeah. Um, but when you build applications that there's a lot of intercommunication between them, uh, you're going to be doing a bunch of denormalization and relational databases. So why not stick into the dynamo do the denormalization and get the speed benefits without the overhead of doing all that sharding yeah or do both you know if you really do need it um right i i think there is a data gravity thing here too like there's a lot of not just like skill investment but actual like literal rows in a database sitting there right now and if you're in big co and you've been around forever and you've got you know gigabytes of data in sql you're not going to stream that into a Dynamo table. Like no. this is this is going to have to be a different story uh, for how that uh, thing gets migrated and/or how those apps uh, evolve into the serverless world. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not a it's not a zero sum game. But I I think if you're using Lambda and you want to play on easy mode and get the best performance characteristics, Dynamo is a no brainer. So what about lock in? Right, I I don't know if we mm. mentioned this earlier, but um, you know, just this idea of lock in, it's it's talked about all the time. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you said your skills are transferable, mm -hmm. but not all of your data or code might be as transferable with Dynamo. So so what's your thought on that? Yeah, the lock in discussion. Um, I, I like to dig into it when people bring it up. So you know, there there are concerns with lock in. One of the concern, primary concerns should be price. Uh, this is the the lock-in a lot of people suffered with Oracle, where they squeeze you as the years go on and your data uh, becomes harder to move. Um, Amazon doesn't really raise prices. Uh, I haven't seen or heard of an instance where they do that historically in the last 10 years. So maybe that'll happen, um, but I'm not betting on it. Uh, it's a pretty competitive market, and they're really interested in margins. And we know Jeff Bezos always says, you know, your, your margin is my opportunity. <laughs> so... I don't see database getting any more expensive because I, I do feel that this is the main anchor differentiation uh, between clouds. And right now, Dynamo is in a really good position, so it's uh, you know a little bit expensive. But uh, as Spanner and Cosmos get better, uh, we're, they're going to start competing on price, which Amazon is more than happy to do. Yeah. So I expect price to go down. That's not really a lock-in concern. Another lock-in concern is they shut the service down. Well. Amazon's still running simple right. DB, so yeah. What are the chances of that? Right. <laughs> if there's anyone on that, they don't shut things down. That's what Google does. Uh, so I'm not worried about uh, I'm not worried about Amazon shutting it down. So the next lock-in concern would be uh, breaking changes. Um, to be honest with you, I kind of wish Amazon would do some breaking changes once in a while. <laughs> But they don't. And if you want evidence of that, go look at the S3 API. They literally have API methods that have V2 in the name of the method. Um, Amazon uh, only yeah. does additive change. So you're not going to suffer a breaking change. You're not going to suffer um, a service shutdown. You're not going to suffer price pumping. So I don't know what the objection is to lock in. Uh, Sure, there's got to be another one. I'm sure someone's going to cook one up, but it's just not a rigorous argument. And uh, for my time, the danger is picking the non-Amazon that right. goes away. So if if my if if my um, solution to lock-in is to use a venture-backed third-party vendor that's privately held, 
then I have done some very poor risk analysis because we all know how that story right. goes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the privately held venture backed company is looking for and, an and, exit. And probably, <laughs> like, and probably in hiring someone specifically to deal with that different type of technology or whatever, right? Uh, you know, that's that, that DBA concern. It's, it's just, you know, even if they, you know, even yeah. if Amazon did raise their prices, it's probably going to be a lot cheaper than paying a bunch of DBAs to keep you know, rebalancing the MongoDB cluster or the Cassandra rings or, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, totally. anyway, I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, all right, so we've been talking for a very long yeah. time, um, and we probably could keep talking for a while, but I do want to get to begin.com oh, yeah. uh, because yeah. it's a super interesting Should thing. <laughs> um, so it has been in private beta for quite some time, but you've got some news, right? I have some news. I'm uh, stoked to announce that uh, Begin is now publicly available. Anyone can try it out. Um, we have a uh, free tier where you can deploy an app um, serverlessly to AWS uh, in 30 seconds or less. Uh, usually takes around 10 seconds, but we, we, we have an internal benchmark of 30 seconds. It's CICD, but serverlessly. So CICD is not news. Um, they've been around for, it's been around forever, and there's tons of uh, people that do it, um, but most of them are for traditional architectures. And uh, haven't really uh, taken advantage of this serverless um, world. And so Begin is a, a fully ground up cloud native serverless um, deployment service and CI CD service. And as a result, our uh, build times usually at, at most span into a minute. Usually they're around 30 seconds. Uh, that's great lead time to production. Lead time to production is the main metric by which companies mm -hmm. live and die. And uh, we give you an extreme advantage to that. Um, and it's all just architect. So you can uh, eject at any time and run on your own AWS. Our paid tier will target your AWS. Our free tier is running on okay. our AWS. And because um, we found a lot of devs, and I think this is an interesting thing, but when I, there's a huge Amazon community, obviously, and there's a huge amount of people building for the cloud, but I talked to a lot of newer devs and they're really intimidated by AWS. You know, they, they don't know how to get started and they don't know where to get started. And they find it to be just so overwhelming and it's just way easier to get started with, with someone else and uh, begin seeking to fix that problem. They, they shouldn't have to get started with someone else. They should be able to deploy straight to their Amazon within 30 seconds. And that's, uh, that's, that's awesome. Goal. All right. Well, listen, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, yeah. sharing all your knowledge uh, with the community, all the open source stuff that you've done. Uh, so how can listeners find out more about you, Architect, Begin, and uh, all that stuff? Yeah, uh, begin.com. It's, it's uh, open, so go log in with your GitHub. Um, if you want to find me, um, uh, Brian LaRue on Twitter and GitHub, and uh, usually respond pretty quickly. And uh, if you want to learn more about Architect, you can go to arc.codes. Awesome. All right. I will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks, man. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Brian LaRue for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 17. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>